BetMGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at BetMGM. Simply download the BetMGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then, place a $5 wager on any sport. You'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Hello, everyone, and welcome to Blogging Theology. Today, I'm delighted to talk again to Dr. Shweb Ahmed Malik. You're most welcome, sir. Thank you so much for having me again on your show, Paul. Good to see you. You're at Istanbul at the moment, is that right? Yep, yep. Uh, I landed here on election day, <laughs> so it's it's been pretty interesting. I, I just I wish I could be there with you. I mean, just a sense of the the excitement that I, I hear is going on in Istanbul because the election results must be amazing to experience. So. Yeah, it was it was incredibly vibrant. So I landed uh, at around eight p.m. And I had to go through. Uh, I had to go through the east, uh, through the European side of Istanbul, to the east side, Asia yeah. side. Yeah. And it was a lovely drive, and you could see the passion, you could see the cheers, wow. the screams. It was all over the place. It was very yeah. lively. It was very lively. Yeah, inshallah, I'll go there one day soon. Um, back to business. For those who don't know, uh, Shuaib is an assistant professor of in the College of Natural and Health Sciences at Zayed University in Dubai, where he has been teaching for seven years. In addition to his PhD in chemical engineering, Dr. Malik is currently completing his second PhD in theology uh, at the University of St. Mary's in the UK. Best wishes with that, sir. Um, He's the author of Islam and Evolution, Al-Ghazali and the Modern Evolutionary Paradigm, published by Routledge in 2021. It's an excellent book, by the way. I do recommend people read it, which was chosen as the best academic book of uh, science and religion by the International Society for uh, Science and Religion in 2022. He's currently writing a textbook and a micrograph on the pedagogy of Islam and evolution for Routledge and has several uh, other edited volumes and special issues underway. Now, today, uh, Shoaib will be giving a presentation titled Islam and Science, an Introduction. Now, there's also a really important reason why we are having this particular presentation today. And we want to share with you a really important announcement at the end of this presentation. So stay tuned, folks. In the meantime, it's over to you, sir. Thank you so much, Paul. Uh, I, I, uh, I can't wait to, to make the big announcement. Mm. Uh, for those of you who are wondering why we're starting off with, a, with, with this presentation deck, it's because it's leading up to that announcement. It's a, it's a big, I think, uh, milestone for the development of Islam and science. But um, before we get to that, I think it's, it's important to provide a historical context to how Islam and science emerged 
as a discourse on its own. And mm. this is what this presentation is going to do, inshallah. Now, it's very difficult to talk about, you know, the history of Islam and science, given that I believe there are many histories of Islam and science. Usually we tend to focus on an Ottoman-centric or an Arab-centric reception of how Islam science was discussed. But there's also the Indonesian reception. There's the American reception. There are Muslims even in the UK. Abdullah Kuliam in his Crescent, the, the that famous... Uh, catalog that he you know he published he talks about science several times so there there are not there isn't just one history of islam and science there are many histories Good but point. for the sake of brevity and simplicity i am going to just provide a very um brief sketch of the history of islam and science by focusing on some of the key main thinkers leading up to the modern period with that um out of the way this is what we're going to cover the first part of this presentation we'll look at the 1850s to the 1950s transition. And that's a very pivotal moment for the Muslim world because that's where you get to see this, you know, um, clear observation in the Muslim intelligentsia um, regarding colonialism, imperialism, and Orientalism, and how science became really caught up in, that, in those conversations. Mm. We then move on to the 1980s where we see the, I would say, the, the actual formalization of Islam and science as a discourse. We see an explosion of literature, a very concentrated literature. And then finally, the 2000 and onwards where we begin to see uh, you know, very um, niche streams emerging in, in, in Islam and science. And then we'll move on to a conclusion, inshallah. That's the, that's the plan for this presentation. Okay. Right. Um, so what happened at the turn of the 20th century? So these definitions are taken from Merriam-Webster in case people aren't familiar with these terms. But the Muslim world uh, was very clearly um, experiencing the forces of imperialism, colonialism and Orientalism. And uh, this is very easy to talk about in terms of you know, making a point, but it's hard to kind of understand what it meant on a day to day level. So just to give people some visual prompts on this. What you see here is a map that details the caliphate um, from the 1850s all the way to its collapse in 1924. So the orange borders that you see were you know, the limits of the um, Ottoman caliphate starting from the early 1900s. Over time, through um, uh, you know, external uh, forces, this empire began to crumble. And eventually, it led to the dissolution of the caliphate in 1924. And that's where you just get to see Turkey. And this is where Muslims start to see that the Western world is gaining prominence. Mm. And they're gaining military power. And they're gaining political sovereignty. And as a result of that, the Muslim world started feeling um, a, you know, a, an extreme sense of subjugation. And... Naturally, the question is, why is the Western world so progressing and we are falling behind? And this is where we start seeing the threads of science and Islam emerge. Mm. A lot of the people in the intelligentsia. Bet MGM has an unreal deal for sports fans in Virginia. Turn $5 into $150 instantly when you place your first wager at Bet MGM. Simply download the Bet MGM app and sign up using code CHAMPION150. Then... 
place a $5 wager on any sport, you'll receive $150 in bonus bets, regardless of your wager's outcome. And if you think the fun stops there, the king of sportsbooks has plenty of surprises in store. Check out daily promotions, same game parlays, live bets, and so much more. Download the app in Virginia today and get $150 in bonus bets instantly from your first wager only at BetMGM. BetMGM and GameSense remind you to play responsibly. See BetMGM.com for terms. 21 plus only. Virginia only. New customer offer. Subject to eligibility requirements. Rewards are non-withdrawable bonus bets that expire in seven days. Please gamble responsibly. Gambling problem? Call 1-800-GAMBLER. Promotional offer not available in Washington, D.C. Felt that one of the reasons why the Western world was progressing so well is because they invested heavily in modern science. Now, I can't, of course, go through a full spectrum of views. Like I said, this is going to be a patch job in the sense that I'm going to provide glimpses of certain exchanges and encounters through which you can get some gleanings of how science played a role in this very critical um, era for the Muslim world. A very famous exchange took place between Ernst Rannan and Jamal al-Din Afghani. For those of you who... Uh, watch the previous video that I did with uh, Paul on Ghazali, Ernst Renan came up. So Ernst Renan is, was a very famous philosopher and he was also an Orientalist. He yeah. viewed the Muslim world as a backward civilization um, and they needed to be cultured and civilized by the West. He actually did, I, I think, his PhD on Ibn Sina. And uh, he had a very famous speech that he did at Paris Sorbonne University uh, in 1883. Jamal al-Din Afghani heard this speech and also wrote a response to this and these became uh, available in a journal. So their words were recorded and printed. I want to go through one excerpt of Ernst Renan and one excerpt of, of Jamal al-Din Afghani. And just for people you know, to kind of get a grasp, Jamal al-Din Afghani is, you know, from, uh, from some standards, he's considered a modernist in the sense that he started this uh, uh, revolution of progressive thinking. Mm-hmm. Whether that's true or not is not the point of this particular presentation. My intention here is just to kind of give you an overview of how people were thinking about the Muslim world and how science played some role in that discussion. So let's move on to Ernst Renan. Here is an excerpt. It's not the full speech. You can find the full speech online or you can email me. I can send the full um, script. But this is what he says. Any person with a modicum of instruction in the affairs of our time clearly sees the current inferiority of Muslim countries the decadence of the states governed by Islam, the intellectual non-entity of the races that derive their culture and education solely from this religion, i.e. Islam. Anyone who has been to the Orient or Africa is struck by the faithfully narrow-minded character of the true believer, by this sort of iron band that encircles his head, rendering it completely impervious to science, incapable of learning anything, or opening itself up to any new idea. Beginning with his religious initiation, toward the age of 10 or 12, the Muslim child, up to the point sometimes fairly bright, so he gives you some credit, suddenly (laughs) becomes fanatical, full of a foolish pride in possessing what he believes to be absolute truth. Pleased with what causes inferiority as if for a privilege, this senseless pride is the radical flaw of the Muslim. That's extraordinary. I mean, I've never come across this statement before. A- absolutely extraordinary. From a very allegedly enlightened, uh, enlightened Frenchman, of course. 
Yeah. And so, I mean, th these are very strong statements to make. And I think by any modern standard, I mean, he would be canceled if he, if anyone said something to that effect. Mm -hmm. Now, this was, you know, a French scholar making certain declarations about the Muslim world. Now, Jamal al-Din Afghani, who himself was a Muslim, right? Now, yeah. you would expect him to defend Islam. But here's what he says. Again, this is an excerpt. Gosh. I cannot keep from hoping that Mohammedan society will succeed someday in breaking its bonds and marching resolutely in the path of civilization after the manner of Western society for which the Christian faith, despite its rigors and intolerance, i.e. he's referring to certain tensions known at the time between Christianity and science, was not at all invincible and invincible obstacle. No, I cannot admit that this hope be denied to Islam. I plead here with Mr. Renan, not the cause of the Muslim religion, but that of several hundreds of million of million men who would thus be condemned to live in barbarism and ignorance. This is the key sentence. In truth, the Muslim religion has tried to stifle science and stop its progress. It has thus succeeded in halting the philosophical or intellectual movement and in turning the minds from the search for scientific truth. Oh, now, so extraordinary. Yeah. yeah, and so so what you see here is that Afghani bought the terms of Renan. He bought mm. the terms. He implicitly agrees that there's mm. something that Muslims have that is stifling scientific progress. He, he, he bought the terms presented by Renan. And this is going to play a very important role in the succeeding thinkers we're going to look at. But this is a very important exchange that you see in the history amongst the intelligentsia in the in, in the Muslim um, territories in this era. Mm -hmm. So this happened in 1883. We then move on to, you know, to, to, to starting the 20th century. And this is where you start getting the um, state formations, right? So if you look at um, the, the key here, the brown orange colors were colonies of the British, the greens for the French, the blue for Italians and the yellowish were for, for Spain, right? And mm. the dates that you see, those are independence dates. Right. Algeria became a nation state in 1962. Libya in 1951. Uh, I can't see it so clearly, but 1922 for Egypt. So these, this, is, this is the era that we see where states are beginning to form. And this happens, of course, in parallel with the dissolution of the caliphate. And so... One question now becomes is, we have now nation states. How do we progress? How do we move on from here? And so what we see in this phase is that science becomes a key ingredient in national success. How does this come about? Well, we'll see. This is Muhammad Abdu, right? Uh, again, he is generally understood by some accounts to be a modernist, a reformist of somehow, right? And he wrote several works. He wrote several works. The most interesting work for our purposes is this, Al-Islam wal-Nasraniya ma'al-ilm wal-Madaniya. Islam and Christianity in relation to science and civilization. And he wrote this just before his death, just before his death. He passed away um, uh, relatively recently. No, hang on. I made a mistake here. Sorry, those dates are wrong. This is. I think he passed away in 1903. That date is wrong. My apologies for that. So, uh, now, this work talks about how Islam and science have a more harmonious relationship than Christianity. Mm. Very interestingly, right? Very interestingly, he quotes John William Draper, 
John William Draper, for, for, for people who are unfamiliar, he was one of the first people who instigated this idea of the conflict thesis, him and Andrew Dixon White. Uh, they wrote works which clearly state that Catholicism and science were at loggerheads. And they give various examples. The whole Galileo versus the church comes out of those works. Now, what's interesting about Abdu, why is he important? Well, first and foremost, he was mentored by Afghani, the previous um, uh, intellectual that we looked at earlier. He, he was an Azhari graduate and a very senior Azhari graduate, right? And <clears throat> what's, what, what is of great interest is that in this work, he um, takes advantage of Draper's criticism of Catholicism to show that Islam is indeed a has a better relationship with science and not the West. And this becomes an important discussion later down the line when it comes to looking at which religion is better in this modern landscape when you have these new modern scientific developments. So again, just a rough idea. And there's a, a friend of mine, um, I think, yeah, uh, Muhammad Gamal Abdul Noor. He's actually translating this book into English, inshallah. That'll be coming out, I think, in the next year or two. So this is a very interesting snapshot during this era. Another um, uh, development that we see is the first fully developed tafsir in the modern era, which takes science seriously and incorporates it into exegesis. This is Tantawi Jauhari, right? He wrote uh, Al-Jawahir fi Tafsir al-Quran al-Kareem. And in there, right? And he tries to show that science is something that we should be investing in. And the way he does this is by stressing that Muslims need to put in a lot of effort because of development. This is what's going to help us progress nationally as a culture, as a race, and as a religious unit. There is a friend of mine, Majid Dineshkar. He wrote an excellent book on uh, Tantawi, uh, which is the scholar we looked at earlier. And he makes it very clear that... he. In him trying to look at science in the Quran or trying to see, you know, possible correlations, he wasn't doing it to show that there are scientific miracles in the Quran. No, he was doing it to articulate that in order for Muslims to succeed civilizationally again, they need to invest in this body, in this methodology to help Muslims uplift themselves. Right. So you see here that at the, at, at the top levels of, of, of dialogue and discussion, we see intellectuals really understanding the utility and the value of science in the modern era. That's the key point here, right? So now we move on. So I know this was a big jump, but now we move on to the late um, 1970s, 1980s era. So we looked at it from the 1850s to the 1960s, which is where we see the whole, you know, aftermath of a post-colonial, of a post-caliphate reaction, and even the dissolution of the empire, development of nation states. What we now see in the 1970s and 80s is the emergence of two diametric movements, very, very interesting movements. The first movement is the Islamization of science. And this movement was very, very popular at the time. And the main idea behind this movement were two principles, the main ideas. One was that science, modern science as we understand it today, has been... Um, infiltrated with modern or Western or secular influences. And what we need to do is we need to run this through an Islamic filter and therefore come up with an Islamic science. And there were many thinkers in this area. The most prominent four are the ones you see here. Wow. 
Sayyid Hussein Nasr uh, is an Iranian. He is now in the States. He's a George Washington. He's a professor at George Washington University. Um, if I'm not mistaken, I think he's the eldest of this lot. Oh, yeah. Nadeem al is a Malaysian thinker. He wrote, you know, very, very popular books, Islam and Secularism, yeah, Prolegomena, yeah. Metaphysics of Islam, for instance. Ziauddin Sardar is, you know, from, from your town, uh, Paul. He's a uh, Pakistani-British, right? Uh, yeah. And then we have Ismail Faruqi, who, is, who was a Palestinian-American. He passed away. Uh, well, he was assassinated, rather, in 1986. Gosh. Now, they wrote several books talking about how we Islamize science. These are some of them. Uh, it is not in our interest to go into their specifics. That's not the point of this presentation. The mm -hmm. idea here is we had very um, interesting ideas discussed by these thinkers on how we can go about Islamizing science. Now, this was homogenous in terms of its outlook, but they differed a lot in the details. And right. for that, we can hopefully have maybe another show down the line. But the main mm -hmm. idea here is this was a very concentrated movement and people had very strong opinions in how do you go about Islamizing science. So this was one movement that we see. And so keep in mind, this movement was, was very suspicious of modern science. It did not believe that it came with this neut neutrality that we seem to think it has. So that's one movement. By contrast, <laughs> we yeah. have the whole scientific miracles in the Quran movement. This kicked up around the same period. This movement is not suspicious of modern science. It actually is very affirmative. Like, oh, all these modern things, it's in our Quran, right? And so we see pamphlets, videos, conferences, talking about how modern science found that iron was, you know, sent through meteors or some kind of comet showers, right? This is in the Quran. The moon does not actually give its own light. It reflects sunlight. Mountains having roots, the Big Bang, the atom is in the Quran. All these kinds of things start kicking up. And the main person who kind of initiated this conversation is Maurice Bukhail. Wow. The Bible, the Quran, and modern science. And remember earlier, we were talking about the whole Islam, science, and Christianity, and how that was playing a role in the earlier conversations. You now see a replication of this in this work. Right? So you can, I hope, what, I, what I'm hoping that people can see is like a historical thread. And hopefully, inshallah, you know, future historians can fill in the details as we go along. Because currently we're missing out several spaces. The Iranian reception, you know, the, the Indonesian reception, the, the Malaysian reception. All of those are still in development. So what we see here is, you know, individuals like Maurice Bukhail, and there are many after him. Like we see modern extensions of this through Zakir Naik. Uh, Aira at one point were propagating the whole, you know, scientific miracles in the Quran movement, which then they took a U-turn on. You know, uh, Harun Yahya, of course, uh, was for a period very, very popular. And he's now languishing, I think, in a prison in, in the country you're in at the moment. In, yeah. In, yeah. Um, somewhat discredited uh, as, a, as a person. Uh, I won't go into that. It's quite an extraordinary uh, story. But um, he, he was a hugely popular popularizer uh, through, you know, very colorful, gaudily colored books. Uh, that he sent to people all, all around the world. But he's kind of disappeared off the stage and his work is pretty much not available anymore, as far as I can see. Yeah, yeah. So so, so this, this, this. I mean, these both of these movements have had a lasting impression. Now, of course, they've had their respective criticisms, uh, but we still see these currents today. So these were the two like dominant movements from the 1980s to the 2000s. When we come to the 2000s onwards, what we see now are not just these two ideas, these are still alive today. These, these threads are still alive today. 
But in addition to that, we see now new research lines emerging. And that's because we now have several, uh, several people in the new generation who are working on different local arenas in Islam and science, right? Yeah. And these different lines are, of course, being developed at different paces. So the subject maturity varies from one to another. And naturally, given that this is a niche area that is emerging, something that I've been trying to help develop, you will naturally find several differences of opinions. Mm-hmm. So what are these new research lines? What emerges in this, in this area, in this, in this time? Well, the first question is, how do we view the relationship between Islam and science? Here we have three different books, one by Sayyid Hassan Nasr, one of, the, one of the people we looked at from the Islamization of the science movement. We have Muzaffar Iqbal. He has an intellectual link to Sayyid Hassan Nasr. Here we have Nadal Ghassoum's book, Islam's Quantum Question. And each of these have slightly different ways of looking at the relationship between Islam and science. Right? So that's a methodological discussion. Another area here is physics and Islam. So we have now interesting developments through quantum physics. How do we view quantum physics with an Islamic framework? On the left, you have a book by Mahdi Gulshani. It's a very rare book to find now. Uh, it's, it's a very thin book, but it's a remarkable book. I really enjoyed it. And uh, he, so he writes from a Shi'i perspective, or I, I think it's a general Islamic perspective. He doesn't make it clear that it's writing from a Shi'i perspective. And then on the right-hand side, we have Basil al-Ta'i. He is a, an Iraqi uh, physicist, and uh, he now lives in Leeds. He's retired now, but this is one of his lasting contributions in this area. And he believes that quantum mechanics actually works very well, particularly with the Kalam tradition. He tries to make certain stitches there. In my opinion, at least in English literature, this is one of the key books that really looks at uh, contemporary quantum mechanics and Islam. Interesting. Another dimension, of course, is Islam and evolution, something we have spoken about before. And this is, I think, the most developed territory. Well, one of the most uh, developed territories. And that's because I think evolution has become such a big um, thing in the Muslim world. It's a very, very um, sensitive subject. And so these are just a few examples. You've got New Keller's book there from 1999. You've got David's book there. In 2009, 2010, we have uh, uh, Shanavas um, who wrote this book. This was the second edition. He wrote a a first edition, I think, a few years before this. My book came out um, uh, two years ago. And we have new books coming out, uh, one of which you will be looking at shortly is inshallah in the, in the next few weeks. So Islam and evolution is, is a big conversation. Yeah. We have now also people in fiqh looking into medicine and biomedicine. So there are all sorts of new medical developments that are coming to the fore. And fuqaha or Muslim legal scholars are going to now have to look at these uh, new uh, developments with uh, you know the traditional methodology, but engage with things that they have not necessarily thought of before. One <laughs> example is organ transplantation. Yeah. Right. So, can Muslims donate, um, you know, their organs? Can they receive their organs? And are there any boundaries? Are there any limits to who can accept our organs and who we can receive from? Is it only from Muslim to Muslim or Muslim to non-Muslim as well? Um, if, if I remember correctly, I think this was a big conversation in Netherlands, if I'm not mistaken. Mm-hmm. But there was, a, there was a hoo-ha by one politician because Muslims generally, you know, they can accept organs, but they don't give organs to, or, they don't, uh, you know, they don't exchange organs with non-Muslims. And I think this one politician made the statement that they're taking our organs, but they're giving none back. <laughs> All right. Okay. So this, um, this I, I just want to say, by the way, um, I, I had a huge honor talking to uh, Professor Mohammed Ghali uh, from Qatar 
about a week ago, and he did a, a program on BT Islam and bioethics, an introduction oh. which, which covers this. And he's doing some incredible work um, yeah. in the whole field of uh, bioethics and, and and the origins of life and medicine and so on. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So, mm -hmm. so, and, and these are these are going to be very pressing challenges. There are a yeah. lot of new things. VR, virtual reality. Right. That's going to be a big one. We have even technologies like ectogenesis, the fact that you can have a baby being born or being created outside of a mother's womb artificially. Mm -hmm. What is the fickle of that? Can we do that? Can we not do that? Right. Mm -hmm. So these questions are emerging and our jurisprudence scholars are going to have interesting debates about how to go about appropriating these. So that's that's a new line that's opened up. We also have, and this is, I think, one of the more developed ones as well, is Islamic psychology. Malik Badri is generally identified as the founder of this area. He passed away a couple of years ago. A more recent one uh, is published by Abdullah Rothman. He's the principal yeah. at Cambridge Muslim College. So he, 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 he published this book. So Islamic yeah. psychology is, is, is a new one, right? Uh, sorry, uh, uh, one line in this area. And then finally, history of Islam and science. Uh, generally, because of, the, because of Orientalist currents, uh, there was a, a general understanding that Muslims had no science and no philosophy to offer. Hmm. But there's been a pushback against this narrative, a very strong pushback by international scholars who've tried to show that no, you know, there was no decline of philosophical or scientific activity per se. Uh, this is just a view looked at from Orientalist lens. If you actually look for manuscripts, you find several philosophical and scientific activities. And I think George Saliba's book on the left-hand side does a phenomenal job in, in refuting the idea that, you know, there was some kind of decline after Ghazali and Ghazali, Ghazali calls the decline of sciences and philosophy or whatever. Mm. So this is another area. And again, coming back to what I said earlier, um, the history of Islam and science is, I believe, something that needs to be really pushed for because there are many histories of Islam and science because of different localities and the, the different places that Muslims are occupying. And so I think this is going to be a ripe area for future scholars to look into. Yeah. Now, if you compare the development of Islam and science, this discourse did not formally start until the 1980s, 1970s, 1980s. And uh, I think... This is partly due to the effects of colonization and the, the reconstitution of nation states. And colonization didn't just end when there was a, a national day of independence in these various countries. There were other yep. kinds of continuing colonization, economically, yep. cultural, militarily, yep. Yep. that, that yep. continued after the formal declaration of independence. So that those dates that you gave might be good in textbooks, but the reality, these socioeconomic Endure beyond that, yeah, 100%. Yeah, yeah. So, I believe that. So, the way the way I put it is geographical colonization may have gone, but intellectual colonization is still there, right? right. So, so, and, and, and I think we, we, we need to be aware of this history because they do have lasting effects, something that still catches us today. And when you compare this to the wider field of Islam and science, it's as our science of religion, science of religion, i.e. Christianity and, and science, this started off formally in the 1960s. And you yeah. see immediately from the very early days, developments of textbooks, the Journal of Zygon, which is the world's leading you know, journal for science and religion, started off in 1966. You begin to see then books being poured out, uh, people getting more specialized in these areas. You begin to see institutions being developed around this. You begin to see um, uh, uh, specific departments allocated to this. But in the Muslim side of things, there is nothing like that. Nothing mirrors that till today, as far as I can tell. There's a lack of infrastructure from the Islamic side. There are, there, 
To my knowledge, there is no textbook on Islam and science. There are 13 at the moment from the Christian side. There are no dedicated university courses, though I have seen one or two pop up here and there, right? There is definitely no dedicated department to looking at Islam and science, um, which is a shame. And then on top of that, you also have social political tensions. Um, uh, when you look at you know, the sensitivities of some of these conversations, evolution being one prime example, uh, these conversations are not easy to have. And as a result, these are you know, usually uh, put to the sidelines because it may potentially lead to excommunication or you know, you know, political tensions, social tensions. And that's why people don't, generally don't talk about it. There's also lack of expertise. Islam and science is an inherently interdisciplinary area. So you need theologians, philosophers, and scientists, and even people who can, you know, not necessarily are experts in all three, but are trying to bridge all three together. Bridge builders. This is what Dr. Padilla uh, calls it. I like that term, bridge builders. And more importantly, there are lack of opportunities. We currently have several positions for science and religion from a Christian angle at, at, at you know, well-reputed universities, Cambridge, Oxford, Edinburgh, right? But nothing like that exists from the Muslim side. And so this is the reason why I feel there has been a generally uh, or relatively slow progression of Islam and science uh, and uh, not enough uh, academic production in this area. Now, this is not to say all hope is lost, which leads me to our uh -huh. announcement. Uh -huh. Here we go. Here we go. First. <laughs> right. So in 2023, mm. we saw the production of uh, or, or the release of the uh, Cambridge Elements Islam and Science series. This is being edited by Nadal Gusum and Stefano Bigliardi. Hmm. And this is the first book of that series, which you see on the left-hand side. Yeah. Now, to be clear, this is a, a micrograph series, which means the upper cap on this is about 30,000 words. So these are not going to be, I, at least in my opinion, they won't be as constructive and, and you know, and, and, and fully formalized. I mean, there's only so much you can write in 30,000 words. It's one or two articles, maybe three at best. But these are largely going to be summative pieces, right? Uh, and so I felt there's still a gap here. And I can now formally announce that Palgrave Macmillan, one of the world's leading book publishers in the world, is going to have a dedicated book series on Islam and science, the world's first monograph series. Now, this is an incredibly important development because we do have series of science of religion, Rutledge, where my book on Islam Lushu came out. But we have, uh, I think, one with Oxford. We even have, I think, one with Bloomsbury, but not one in Islam and science. This is now an avenue that's opened up, and I uh, am its chief editor, wow. which means we now have a space, Muslims now have a space through which they can develop ideas in a way that is academically recognized and internationally reputable as well. And so what I'd like to do through this video is have an open call to academics around the world that if you have any ideas, manuscripts around Islam and science, feel free to send them to me because we are going to hopefully now start a, an infrastructural development where in the next 10, 20, 30, 40 years, we can see a plethora of resources for academics, for seminaries, as well as for the Muslim laity through which they can now think about these things. We've already had proposals come through. So we have one on AI and Islamic theology. Really? We have one on organ transplantation, right? We have yeah. one on new atheism and Ashari uh, theology and multiverses, right? So, so we've got several things coming up. That's right, you see, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. 
And so, I mean, I would love to see a proposal on Ibn Taymiyyah and AI. What would, what would Ibn Taymiyyah think of artificial intelligence? Right? <laughs> right? So this is, this, is, this is the big news that I want to share with everyone. And mm. I think now it's high time that we pull our acts together and now really provide some kind of acceleration to this field. And mm. I hope that, you know, in the next... Tw- so, so I got this uh, when I'm 34. I mean... From an academic standpoint, that's really rare. Usually people don't get in charge of book series until the like 50s or 60s. Yeah. I can now comfortably dedicate my life to this field, this, this field that I've always been passionate about. And I want to see, hopefully, inshallah, before I hit the grave, that we have you know, several future bright scholars who have written all kinds of things about this area. Mm-hmm. Hopefully, provide now an academic interface that is relevant to all Muslims, inshallah. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, that's, that's extremely uh, an amazing announcement. Thank you so much for uh, doing that, and I really do, do wish you well in in this amazing project, which will uh, be a paradigm shifting, groundbreaking work. I'm sure. I mean, what, what would be the first um, sort of product of this? What would be the first text that we produce? Do you think? Right. So I, uh, I mean, like I can't, I can't. So I can tell you what the first few titles could be, but because yeah. each of them are, you know, in different stages of the pipeline, I can't be too sure. But okay. I can definitely give you some of them. One would be, one, one is definitely on organ transplantation. Mm-hmm. One is definitely on um, uh, theology and AI, but which theology I can't say, otherwise people would recognize who the scholar is. So I'm just giving you a blank discussion. And that's, it's, it's, just, it's just in order not to break peer, peer review. That's the only reason why, right? We have one on um, evolution coming up. We have one on new atheism and multiverses coming up. We have one on Allama Iqbal coming up. Right. So Alam Iqbal's views on, on, on evolution or, or science, I, I'm not quite sure yet, but the proposal is still being developed. So those are just to, to begin with. And I'm hoping to see that more proposals are going to come through. And the best part is this. We also accept translations. So I was able to convince Palgrave that, look, there are many key books in this area that are not in English. There mm. are books in Farsi, there are books in Turkish, there are books in Urdu, there are books in Arabic. We need a space for this as well. And so they are willing to accept on a case-by-case basis, if the proposal is good enough, where we can accept translations, hopefully. So that yeah. is it. The danger is that English dominates the scene again. It's almost like a neo-Orientalist kind of thing going on. But if one can bring in um, these other languages too, um, then that's a more international effort. Fantastic. Yeah. yeah, inshallah, inshallah. So that was the big announcement. And just to kind of put it all together, Islam and science is a nascent field, and it has definitely a different trajectory to science or religion. Multiple lines are slowly being discussed, and there have been infrastructural reasons for why it hasn't picked up the pace, at least as not as much as the broader science religion field. We now have the space to do so, and I hope people contribute to this development, inshallah. Mm-hmm. And if you have any questions, feel oh. free to reach out to me. Thank you very much for listening to me, and thank you, Paul, for giving me your platform again. Oh, that's great. So people can contact you on that email address. And I do wish you again all the success uh, with this very exciting new project, of which you are the editor-in-chief, no less. Um, And uh, that's fantastic news. So, uh, well, uh, we'll leave it there. And thank you very much uh, indeed. And we'll see you again, hopefully, um, Shoaib, to talk about those other matters you mentioned during uh, the video earlier on. So until next time, thank you. Okay.